In, uh, in 2006, Oliver Stone directed a movie. And the movie was about the World Trade Center. And I, to be honest with you, I've never seen it. And so I hope I'm not butchering some of the facts of this. But in the movie, one of the major plot lines was about a Sergeant Thomas. Sergeant Thomas was formerly a Marine, but was serving as a courthouse security guard at the time of the attacks of September 11th. And Sergeant Thomas was at his mom's house in Long Island when the attacks happened. As he watched on TV and saw the rescuers going in and pulling people out of the rubble, he decided to go. And so he went down to Ground Zero, and uh, against the, the warnings and the prohibitions to not go onto the metal because it was too hot, he ventured out onto the rubble. And as he ventured out there, he heard some screams from deep below the rubble. As a matter of fact, 20 feet down below the rubble, he heard screams. One of the men screaming was a man named Will. And Sergeant Thomas dug down and pulled Will and his friend out, and he rescued them. But then Sergeant Thomas disappeared. He had evidently gone home because he was sick from the smoke, but he had never appeared again. And so Will went on this journey for about five years looking for Sergeant Thomas, trying to figure out who this Sergeant Thomas was. And he looked and he looked and he looked and he couldn't find him. And then finally, when the movie came out five years later, Sergeant Thomas saw himself in the movie and he recognized himself. And Sergeant Thomas was actually an African-American man and the character playing him was white. And so there are several things that they didn't know. So he went and he talked to them. And, but he was then recognized for the one who saved them. And so Will finally got to meet Sergeant Thomas and thank him. And what he said was this. He, Will said, this man has been selfless and he doesn't look for... He doesn't look for fortune, and I am just glad that I am able to say thank you to him. Sergeant Thomas in this story is very similar to the life of Jesus. Jesus, for uh, three years, has been going throughout Israel, and he has been doing miraculous works. He's been healing people. He's been feeding 5,000 and more people with bread from two loaves and a few fish, and He's been doing these miracles, but when Jesus heals people, when Jesus does these miracles, he kind of comes up with the same line every time he says, go, praise God, but don't tell anyone, right? Don't tell anyone that I did this. And so he seems very humble and very modest. He says, my time has not yet come. And so you hear these things throughout the Gospels. But that drastically changes this Sunday, on Palm Sunday, Jesus no longer runs away from the accolades of men. As a matter of fact, he comes in on Palm Sunday to declare publicly before all of Israel that he is the king. And so that's what we're going to look at today. Jesus' announcement of his kingship. If you would, turn to Matthew chapter 21. Uh, if you are in the Red Bible, it is page 826. Uh, we will be looking back at this frequently, and so please keep it open. We're going to read a, a fairly large section of text today, but it will be helpful to us. So let's read Matthew 21. We'll read verse 1 through 16. Again, it's page 826 in the Red Bible. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, 
to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them. And he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the fowl of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowd that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer. But you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read, out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Let's pray. Lord, this text is rich with wonderful truths, wonderful application. God, I pray that if there are those here who have never known Jesus as king of their life, that today they would leave acknowledging you as king. For those of, those of us here who do acknowledge you as king, who trust in you for our salvation, we pray that you would have greater dominion, that we would further submit to your kingship in our life for your glory and for our joy. Be with us in these moments. In Christ's name, amen. So in today's passage, we see Jesus publicly announcing his kingship. And we're going to look at three things about this announcement from Jesus, all right? We're going to see three things. They all start with the letter P. Very nifty. First, we see the announcement of Jesus' kingship was planned. Can you say planned? Planned. Good. It was paradoxical. Can you say paradoxical? Nah, you did okay on that one. Let's try this one. And it was polarizing. Very good. Now, for those of you who don't know what those mean, we'll define them. But it was planned, it was paradoxical, and it was polarizing. And these aren't just useless information. These are actually very important things about his announcement as king that we're going to dive into. So let's look at the first one. We see that it was planned, that the announcement of Jesus' kingship was planned. Look at verse 4 with me. It says, This took place 
to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughters of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the fowl of a beast of burden. Now, Zion, if you've ever wondered, Zion is the hill which Jerusalem is on. And so a lot of times, Zion and Jerusalem in the Bible are used interchangeably. And so he says a prophet has prophesied that this would happen. Now, where this comes from is Zechariah uh, 9.9. And just to give you the context of the book, because uh, this will actually help us with all of today's sermon, but in the book of Zechariah, which happens uh, hundreds of years before Jesus, God comes to the people, comes to His people, His people Israel, and they have come back from exile, and they have come back into Zion, into Jerusalem, and they have started to rebuild the temple, started to rebuild the priestly system, started to rebuild a worshiping community. But they were greatly discouraged because there were armies all around that were prohibiting them from finishing this work. Something like 20 years after they get back, God writes through the prophet Zechariah to encourage them, even in the midst of discouragement, of trying to develop this worshiping community. And in Zechariah chapter 8, the Lord promises to His brokenhearted but beloved people that He has a great future for them, a future of peace, a future of salvation. And then as we roll into chapter 9, where this prophecy is found, God tells the people how they will receive this promise of peace and of salvation and that this promise will come by a promised king. And Zechariah 9 starts laying out, what does this king look like? And it talks about this triumphant king who will be victorious over the enemies of Israel. And then Zechariah 9.9 comes along and God pronounces, how will this victorious, glorious king make his entrance into Jerusalem? And it says this in Zechariah 9.9. It should sound very familiar. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the fall of a donkey. One of the reasons we know that the Scriptures are so reliable, one way that we know that they are absolutely the Word of God is because there are over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament, hundreds of years before Jesus ever came, that were fulfilled by Christ. And he could not have gone around and just checked them off, right? There are certain prophecies, like he'd be born of a virgin. Pretty sure he can't control that, right? that he'd be born in Bethlehem, that he would come up out of Egypt, that he would die on a tree, that while he's dying, they would cast lots for his clothes. All of these things are prophecies that were fulfilled by Christ, but that he could not control. But this one is different. Jesus actually orchestrates the triumphal entry. If you look here, we see that that Jesus actually plans it out. You know, I've, I've always assumed... That, uh, that, that this triumphal entry, Jesus kind of came into town. He got a donkey, but he came into town. And as the people were laying down the palms and singing Hosanna, Jesus was kind of sitting there blushing, saying, Oh, shucks, you shouldn't have. you know, And kind of like this was some unexpected thing. But he actually orchestrated it very meticulously. 
And we see this in two ways. The first is very obvious. He says to the disciples in verse 2 here, he says, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them. Now he's claiming his divinity here. He doesn't say, A Lord needs them, but the Lord needs them. And then he says, And he will send them to me. And so we see Jesus orchestrating this. The second way we see it uh, is, an, is a way that's not so obvious, but somehow the crowds knew where to go. Somehow the crowds knew to bring palm branches. Somehow the crowds knew what to sing out and what to praise. And so evidently there must have been some sort of promotion, or they must have somehow at least known, it must have been declared that this was going to be happening. And so Jesus orchestrated this very much so. You know, it kind of reminds me, I uh, go into different different restaurants in Green Bay, and they always have pictures of Packers stuff on the wall. And I wasn't here the last time the Packers won the Super Bowl with that other quarterback. But when that happened, there was a parade, right? I guess there was a parade. Were any of you at that parade, just out of curiosity? Cool, awesome. Now... When I look at the pictures of that, uh, I go, man, that looks cold. (laughs) Lots of snow. But you can also tell that it was very well planned out, that it was orchestrated, that it was foretold even. You know, the radio stations must have said, hey, there will be a parade for the Packers welcoming them home on this day at this time on these streets. It must have been put in the newspapers and on the TV promoting it, right? foretelling it so that people could go and show up. It obviously was also orchestrated because uh, the streets were cleared of snow. (laughs) The policemen were out. Barricades were up. People were out there with homemade signs. And so it was very intentionally planned out to pay homage to the kings of football, right? To pay homage to the Super Bowl kings. This is what we see happening here. Jesus plans this out. God plans this out. God foretells it, and then Jesus orchestrates it. And so the question is, why is this important? Why is it so important to know that God foretold this and that Jesus orchestrated it? Why do we need to know that? Why did Matthew feel it important to spend three or four verses just on the donkey? And the reason is, is because Jesus is saying to the world, your king has arrived. Your king has arrived. Is here The king that you have been longing for from the time of Zechariah, that king is here. All of us long for a king. I don't care who you are. We all long for a king that will bring us peace, that will bring us salvation. If you look at the finances that go to political campaigns, it's very easy to see that we are all looking for a righteous king. And finally... He has come and he is declaring himself to be king. Now this is extremely arrogant of Jesus. This is extremely prideful of Jesus. Unless it is true. And so Jesus comes to announce his kingship and he planned it out that we might know that he is king. But we also see that the announcement of Jesus' kingship was Polarizing. It wasn't just planned, it was polarizing, meaning that you either took one side or the other. There was no indifference to the announcement of Jesus' kingship. Some of them came with great hope in Jesus. 
Some of them put their hope in Jesus as their king. In this passage, it talks about Jesus coming into the temple and driving out the money changers and the sellers of pigeon. And what Jesus was doing was he was doing what was promised in Zechariah. He was restoring the temple to worship. The things that the people were longing for. He kicked them out of the court of the Gentiles so that the Gentiles could worship God. And so there was this great hope. And you can tell people were putting their trust in Him because see what it says that they say. It says, um, actually, let me back up here. It goes on to, to, to continue to, to give more hope. In verse 14 it says, And the blind and the lame came to Him in the temple, and He healed them. Now this is really important. If you remember the story of John the Baptist, John the Baptist gets put in jail, and John the Baptist talks to his disciples somehow, sends them to Jesus And he says, I want you to ask Jesus this question. Are you the one to come? The one that Zechariah prophesied about? The one that all of Israel is hoping and waiting for? Or should we expect another? And so Zechariah's disciples come to Jesus and they ask him this question. And Jesus answers it this way. He doesn't simply just say yes. He says, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. And the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. See, Jesus Jesus doesn't just say yes because that's not very tangible. That's not very good proof. But when Jesus says, you know, all those prophecies in the Old Testament that would point to the Messiah, that would point to the King, those are being fulfilled in me. And so, yes, I am the long-expected one. And so he fulfills those prophecies. And the people in the temple who witness this continue the cry that started outside the city. You see, in verse 15 it says, They are crying out to him, Hosanna to the Son of David. Some people put their hope in Jesus as king. But it was polarizing. Other people hated Jesus as king. They hated his claim to be king. Read along with me, if you would, in verse 15. It says this, But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that Jesus did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant. And they said to Him, Do you hear what these are saying? These religious leaders were furious Because they were saying, listen, Jesus, they are shouting blasphemy. They are calling you the Messiah, the King, God. And what is behind their statement, most definitely, is them saying to Jesus, tell them to stop. Tell them to stop. Tell them that this is not right, that this is not who you are. Tell them that they are blaspheming. Because if you do not, the Romans will come in and they will destroy us. And so tell them to stop. And then I love how Jesus responds to them. This is so cool. I've never seen this before. Jesus quotes to them Scripture. Always a good thing to do, right? Quotes to them Scripture. The religious leaders, He quotes Scripture, and He says this to them in verse 16. He says, Yes, have you never read, out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? Big deal, right? Huge deal. See, what Jesus is doing is Jesus is quoting from Psalm 8. 
And he is quoting a worship song to God. He's quoting a worship song to the Lord God. And so they tell him to stop. And Jesus says, no, they should be worshiping me because I am God. And so Jesus takes this huge bucket of gasoline, dumps it on the fire, and creates even more tension, more angst in the situation. He is saying, let them worship me because I am God. Why did Jesus do this? Why was Jesus trying to frustrate or press the hand of the religious leaders? You know, it's kind of like a yellow stoplight. When you come up to a yellow stoplight, you have to make a decision, right? And what does a yellow stoplight mean? Speed up! That's what I would say. Or slow down, right? But when you come to a yellow light, you have to make a decision whether to speed up or whether to slow down. Jesus is forcing the hand of these religious leaders. He is forcing them to make a decision. They must either king him or they must kill him. That is their two options. There is no indifference. There is no middle ground. And so he is forcing their hand, as Tim Keller mentions in his sermon, to king him or to kill him, that they cannot remain neutral. Now, I want to dwell on this just a little bit. This yellow light was not just for the people in Jerusalem at that time in that week. This yellow light is for us now today. Jesus is saying, you must make a decision on me. This historically happened. There are tons of references historically by non-Christians, by non-religious people, that this happened, that Jesus died on the cross, that he made this triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And Jesus is saying, you must decide, am I king or am I a lunatic? Now, how does this play out in your life? Whether Jesus is king or whether you kill him. Well, I think for most of us, well, for all of us, it is a life decision. Who is king in my life? Is it me? Do I look to myself for the decisions I make? Do I live by my own principles for myself? Am I the Lord of my own life, of my own decisions? Or is Jesus the king of my life? And so for many of us, we have declared... Christ is our King. We will worship Him and we will serve Him. But this is also, on a micro scale, a minute-by-minute, day-by-day decision. Who will be King of this moment right now? When I am at work and the pressure is on and there is temptation to do things that are not legitimate, who is the King of my life? Is it the dollar or is it King Jesus? When I am at home and my kids are crazy... Who is the king of my life? Is it my temper? Do I rage or is it King Jesus? Do I respond to them as Christ has responded to me? And so you see, the kingship of Jesus plays out in every minute of our day. It would probably play it out when you got ready for church this morning, right? I think most of us have things we got to repent of, right? You get hurry, you get the kids in the car, you're, and you forget Jesus is king. And you start to take control of the situation. And so... Jesus comes announcing His kingship, and it is polarizing. Some people put their hope in Him, some people hate Him. But for us, we're called to submit to Him joyfully, wonderfully, because He's a good King and a righteous King. Finally, we're going to see that Jesus' kingship was paradoxical, meaning that it was seemingly contradictory. It seemed to not match up the way that He 
did this. First off, we see that he came in triumphant, right? This is called the triumphant entry, triumphal entry. People had been waiting for a long time for this. Uh, just a few chapters earlier, uh, or sorry, in John chapter 6, Jesus fed 5,000 people. And then after he fed the 5,000, it says this, Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. And so Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And so people wanted Jesus to be king. I mean, there were mommies of the disciples saying, hey, could my son sit at your left and your right when you become a king? And Jesus says, you have no idea what you're talking about. You have no idea about my kingship. But people were constantly wanting Jesus to be king. And so they brought him in like a king. Look in verse 7. It says, They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowds uh, spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And so what they are doing is they were giving Jesus a king's welcome. A king who had gone off to battle, who was victorious over his enemies, and was coming home. This is how they would welcome home the Jewish kings, the kings of Israel, because the palm branch was a sign of the nation of Israel. And so this is how they welcomed home kings, and they're giving Jesus this welcome, a king's welcome home after triumph. And then the crowds go on and they start shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And so they're crying out to this king, Hosanna. What does Hosanna mean? Hosanna means, oh Save us. Save us, please. And so they're crying out for salvation. It is both praise and request. And so it is a triumphal entry, but it is also paradoxical. It's a little bit weird. Verse 5, he comes in humbly. It says, Say to the daughters of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the fowl of a beast of burden. Jesus is heading into Jerusalem. He's headed into the battle, the place where he was called to go. He is the warrior king promised in Zechariah chapter 9. And so he is going into the battle on a donkey. And you may wonder, why did Jesus do this? Why did God plan that Jesus would go in on a donkey? Why is it that important? And it's because it's through Jesus' humility, through Jesus' losing, that he gains victory. I was trying to think of an illustration of this for hours. Had trouble, but finally I thought of this. In 2005, there was a, uh, it was the last game of the NFL season, and the two and 13 Texans, meaning two wins and 13 losses, were playing the three and 12 49ers. And so these were two very horrible teams, and they were playing in something that was called the Bush Bowl, and I'll tell you why in a minute. But in that game, there were devoted 49er fans who were showing up, dressed in 49ers paint and garb and all that, and they were rooting for the Texans. They were hoping actually to lose because, you see, if the 49ers lost, they would have got first-round draft pick the next year, and they would have had Reggie Bush. And that's why it was called the Bush Bowl. And so all these Niner fans were, were hoping and cheering that they would actually lose so that they could win, so that they could win this prize of having Reggie Bush. Well, Reggie Bush, they ended up 
to the Niners' chagrin, uh, winning in overtime. And, uh, and Reggie Bush went on to the New Orleans Saints, and the New Orleans Saints won a Super Bowl for the first time in their franchise history, much to the credit of Reggie Bush. And so, but they had to lose in order to win, and we see this is exactly the case for our king. He had to lose in order to win. You see, when a king comes into battle, I don't think ever in history did they come in on a donkey. Did they come in on a mule? It would have been better for them to walk into battle. To come in on a donkey would be to be on a suicide mission, a kamikaze Certainly no one goes into battle like that, but that's exactly why Christ went in this way. He went in humbly because it was pointing to later in the week when He would have the ultimate humble triumph that would save our souls. Philippians 2, 8 actually captures this. It says, And being found in human form, Jesus humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on the cross. And so when Jesus showed the ultimate sign of humility, what did he lose? Jesus lost his life. Jesus lost that war in order to win the battle, to have triumph over Satan, over death, and over sin. And do you know why this great king lost? Do you know why he came to lose? Do you know what he came to win? You. You were His prize. You were what He came to lose in order to win. You were what He cherished. You were what He came to die for. You see, at the cross, He took on all your sin, all your suffering, all your rebellion against the King. He took it on Himself. And He died for it. He paid for it in full that the King of Heaven would satisfy His justice. That you could be brought into a relationship with God. That the worship hoped for in Zechariah 9 could happen in your heart. You were what He won. Jesus had everything before He came to earth. But He came to win you. And to win me. And so if we trust in Christ... We are one by Him. I'm going to end with this uh, long passage in Revelations chapter 19. Uh, there will be a day, another day, when Jesus will make another triumphal entry. One not so humble. One not so meek. One not on a donkey. We see it in Revelations chapter 19, verse 11 through 16. Read along with me if you would. Not out loud, just in your head. Then I saw heaven opened. Now this is, this is in Revelation, so it's happening in the future at the end of time. I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, not a donkey. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. <coughs> And on his head are many diadems. And he was a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dripped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Sound familiar? John 1.1. 1, 1. 
Verse 14, And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And listen to this. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written. What is it? King of kings and Lord of lords. We live in an age of opportunity, a sliver of time in the scope of all eternity, a time between the donkey and the horse. We live in a time between two triumphal entries, a triumphal entry with the donkey where the humble Savior King came to save us, and the horse where He comes back to judge and to destroy And so while we live in this age of opportunity, the question is, how do you see this Jesus? Is He your King? Because if He is not, He is still King. And He will still come back one day as King to judge righteously. And so my plea for you today is that the time is very short. We have no idea when He will come back on a horse. Would you place your trust in Christ? Would you trust Him as your King? so that you might worship Him as all the people have been longing throughout all of history to worship and to know God, that we would be His peasants, joyfully and wonderfully so. Let's pray. Christ, we do worship You as King. We do thank You that You came humbly on a mule, on a donkey to... Show us a picture of what you were doing later that week, that in humility you would die on the cross for our sins, and that you would raise to new life, that we would be raised from the dead. God, I pray that you would help us to bring your kingship into our life more and more every day. God, if there's anyone here who does not know you as king, I pray that today they would acknowledge you as king and that they would submit themselves to you, that no matter how messy they are, no matter how rebellious they have been, that they will worship you as king and be saved. Thank you for the elements we are about to take, a reminder of your kingship. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.